A Bachelor Girl in Burma. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Hadley. A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine e. Mitten. Author's Note In explanation of the title, I must state that bachelor girls are scarce in Burma. I was sitting one evening in the Gymkhana Club at Rangoon between two married ladies. We had all three been enlarging on the fascination of the land and the delights of being there when one of them broke out abruptly, How lucky you are! You travel about and see it all, and yet you are free. Mrs. R. and I had to get married to come here. This is one way of looking at it. For another, see page 55. This is not a book on Burma. The touching confidence of friends in my ability was shown by repeated queries as to whether I was going to do a book on Burma, after I had been there two months. There is no doubt, of course, that I could have written a complete and exhaustive account of the people in the land, including all the wild tribes of the north, without knowing a single word of their languages. These things come so much by intuition. But I preferred to save the said friends the brainwork such a course would entail, so have written a book which cannot be said to be on anything unless it be on the surface. I have put down what I saw and what I did, and fear that I is writ largely over all the pages. I saw things and heard things, and they amused me. I told them to others, and they amused them, and so I have written them down on paper in the hope they may amuse even those I do not know personally. I have refrained from generalizing on the basis of one example, and when a bit of history is absolutely necessary, I have taken it straight from the pages of the best authority I know, with quotation marks. The book, such as it is, owes its genesis entirely to the suggestion and encouragement of Mrs. Percival Marshall of Moulmein, without whose kindness and hospitality I could never have gone to Burma. It was also through her that I gained a little peep behind the scenes into the ways of the Burmese ladies in their everyday life, for many persons who have lived for years in Burma do not know a single Burman on social terms. I have to mention also with warm gratitude the sympathetic help I received from the Lieutenant Governor Sir Herbert Thurkle White, KCIE, and Lady Thurkle White, by whose kindness I was enabled to penetrate beyond the beaten tracks, and to do much that would have been quite impossible otherwise. As for the illustrations of the book, many friends have lent me photographs to supplement my own. I must acknowledge with thanks those of Mr. Sidney H. Reynolds, who is responsible for no fewer than twelve, that on page 96 taken by Mr. J. McGeorge of Moulmain, and that on page 181 by Mrs. Bingham, and that on page 193 by Captain J. H. Brunskill, R.A.M.C. When not otherwise stated, the illustrations are, with one exception, my own photos, taken by a number four cartridge Kodak. The results show how much may be done with a good camera, even by a complete amateur. G. E. Mitten Chapter 1 of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by G. E. Mitten The Land of Promise 
Whenever for a moment the rushing stream of concentrated thought and action ceases, and my mind drops into a backwater of idleness, the voices of those around me grow insignificant, the affairs they speak of pale in comparison with my pictures that arise clear and sharp before my mental vision. Once again in the rapidly darkening day, while the sunset flashes luridly yellow, I stream past the towering crag in the middle defile of the Irrawaddy. The wash of the pent-in current swirls around the narrowed corner. The hoot of the siren sounds in my ears, and in response to that warning there sprang out in the darkness the dropping fires of two torches held at arm's length by figures seemingly carved in bronze at the two extremes of a fifty-foot raft. Or I am lying back on the veranda of a dak bungalow at Bemo, not far from the Chinese frontier, and see framed in dark teak a raised causeway lying across a plain, bounded by blue hills, and along the causeway there comes a convoy of mules, kicking up the dust. The tinkle of their bells rings in my ears over their prickly cactus plants and the scant herbage, while their drivers, in enormous limpet hats and wide white trousers, run after them. At the beginning of a journey up into those hills and beyond, a journey that will last two months at least. Or I look up at a steep cliff of clay and see at the summit the gorgeously dressed palongs, like huge red and blue parrots, silhouetted against a background of pinnacles and pagodas and palms and sunlight. Or I pass in the spirit amid the courts of the great golden pagoda in Rangoon and hear the monotonous chant of the worshippers as they bow themselves before a mighty brass image that gleams out of a dim shrine by the light of a hundred tiny candles guttering on the ground. In the warm and dreamlike dusk the smell of the incense is wafted to my nostrils, and the fragrance of the frangipani perfumes the air like scent. I could go on with a hundred of such scenes, all different and all indelibly impressed on my brain. For the charm of the most fascinating country in the world, the country of Burma, has laid hold upon me and will be with me to the end. It was the fulfillment of a dream that I should go there, in spite of the difficulty of getting away long enough to cross to the other side of the world, in spite of such sordid considerations as money, in spite of the effort required to break away from the daily routine. Burma combines so much, the glory of the East, the mystery of the unknown, in its strange tribes and races as yet but half understood, even by those who have studied the most, the fascination of nature untamed, and the comfort of traveling under British rule. The charm of this most fascinating land lies not in its beauty, for beauty Ceylon can beat it easily, but in its variety. Ceylon, with her rich jungle-covered hills and her glorious vistas, cannot call back, as does Burma, of the flat paddy fields, of the periodogs and the dusty villages. As a holiday land, Burma is only just beginning to be known. While Egypt has attracted its thousands, Burma has as yet only had its tens. The bloom of it is untouched, its ways are as yet uncrowded. Yet this is bound to be altered in a year or two, for the trip is, after all, extraordinarily cheap.
the return fare for two years by one of the Bibby boats? The principal line, direct to Burma, is only seventy-five pounds. No expensive wardrobe is required, and away from the one or two large towns, where it must be confessed the hotel charges are exorbitant, there are deck bungalows put up by government for the use of travellers, to be occupied at the reasonable rate of one rupee four annas, one shilling eight pence a night. To this certain small charges for sweeper, etc., are added, and the food can be arranged with the derwan or keeper for four rupees eight annas a day, sixpence. Or, if one is staying more than a day or two in one place, it comes cheaper still to let one's own native boy do the catering and cooking. A native boy is indispensable to anyone going about the country who knows neither Hindustani nor Burmese. For about thirty rupees a month, or possibly twenty-five, with an added four annas a day butter money, a boy can be easily arranged. But the worst of it is that many of them are very unsatisfactory. They are almost invariably madrasis or other natives of India, and are as a rule good linguists, but are very ready to take advantage of the slightest weakness in their master or mistress for their own purposes. I was told by those who had much experience in the matter that nine out of ten are untrustworthy, but the tenth, when you can get him, is a treasure who will faithfully serve you. The time to make the trip is in the beginning of November, and the time to return is March, as after that the hot weather comes to make existence in a tropical climate wearisome to the flesh. I started on November 8th, joining the Cheshire, Bibby Line, at Birkenhead, and going right round with her instead of overland to Marseille, as many passengers do. When we were fairly started and out of the Mersey, it was very rough indeed. So rough, the Bibby pilot had to stay on board and go to Marseille with the boat, instead of being put ashore at Holyhead as usual. During the night I heard tons of water thundering down on the decks and rushing out of the scuppers, with a wash and a gurgle. About four in the morning, while I was being pitched from side to side in my bunk, I was startled by the crash of some heavy object coming bang up against the wall of the cabin at every lurch. The steward, when summoned, searched in vain some time for the cause, but at last discovered a wheelbarrow which had been left at large in the coal bunkers below. I was lucky enough to escape seasickness, though for the next two days I preferred to have my meals on deck rather than go into the saloon. At last, however, when Captain Langston good-humouredly remarked on the very uninvalidish plates of lo roast lamb I and a fellow passenger were consuming with enjoyment, we thought it about time to make the effort and begin meals indoors. The Cheshire and the Shropshire, twin steamers, are the smallest now in the Bibby fleet, and I had opportunities for comparing them, for I came home in the Shropshire. I also spent the four days between Rangoon and Colombo on the Herefordshire, one of the largest boats on this line, but I preferred the smaller ones. On all Bibby liners only first-class passengers are carried. This not only gives them the run of the whole ship, including the use of the lower decks as skittle decks, but makes a very homely feeling on board. The difference between these boats and some of the great floating palaces, of many decks and many classes, is best expressed by saying it is comparable with the difference 
between staying at your own club and at a hotel. It may not be generally known that every officer in the Bibby fleet must hold a master certificate, and in that respect at least is equal to the captain, a fact which should inspire the passengers with a feeling of security. A long siege voyage on a passenger steamer is like nothing else. The ship is a world in itself. Other people, other interests, other anxieties drop from one. The petty excitements and games on board loom large in importance. Some voyages are from the beginning dull. The passengers break into sets, and one set refuses to know another. There are jealousies and coolnesses, but all who are there agreed in saying that there never had been such a pleasant voyage as the one I was lucky enough to experience as my first. The relations of passengers to each other would furnish forth a book in itself. Lives there a person who does not think that he or she is entitled to a three-berth cabin to himself or herself, while others may be crammed three together? Lives there anyone who does not resent the advent of new passengers, who cause a little more discomfort, as if they were a source of personal injury, and had no right to come on board at all? These feelings there were no doubt on the Cheshire. They are indigenous to human nature, but they were kept in check by the atmosphere of general good humor and friendliness. The types on board ship would furnish forth much delightful material for anyone who could appreciate them. There is the lady who will be first, but who, if she is allowed that premier position, is a real acquisition, for she is a born leader, and can organize with spirit and originality. There is the hoyden, whose loud laugh and too exuberant manners are always bringing her under the displeasure of her married sister, the sister who is comfortably established in the East, and is kindly taking her out to secure a like advantage. There is the spoilt child, who inspires everyone on board, except his parents, with a frantic desire to administer a spanking. There is the stuffy man, wholly out of place on the ship, who keeps his porthole hermetically sealed, to the disgust and suffering of his cabin companions, and who complains of draughts in the Red Sea. There is the old maiden lady, never seen without her knitting, who has plain features, and looks sharp and sour, but is in reality one of the shrewdest and kindest-hearted people on board. My fellow-travellers may fit the caps here offered, and are at perfect liberty to wear them if they choose, but I can assure you they are not made to measure. To those who are quite novices, there is a great deal that is interesting on the ship itself. The crew of Lascars, with their weather-stained blue uniforms and shining eyes, the mystery of the engines, the working of the great ship, the extreme point of, of the forecastle head, where there is nothing between you and the great ocean, and you may feel you are riding forward into space, the weird noises at nights, the rattles and groans and creaks, and every now and then the monotonous chant from the crow's nest, when, at the hour, after the bells have sounded, the two lascars on the lookout cry in their own tongue, Ham dektehain, I am looking out, Bakdiaka sahib, the lamps are burning brightly. The voyage itself is, of course, much more interesting than that over the Atlantic or to South America, where little or no land can be seen all the way. 
there is perpetual variety, though there are few stoppings. The first land we saw was Cape St. Vincent, and thereafter, at the unearthly hour of 5.30 a.m., we were warned that we were passing Gibraltar. The old hands only snuggled down afresh, but the novices, among whom I was one, tried to struggle up on deck. I put on my big fur coat and a scarf over my head, and reeled up the companionway overcome by sleep, but I woke soon enough when I reached the deck, where a blast of bitter wind drove around, and I stepped into a flood of water where the men were washing the decks. I struggled up higher and came out on the saloon deck, only to find it exposed and soaking. It was raining and blowing at the same time. Another woebegone shadow inquired of me where was Gibraltar, but I could not answer, for the view around was as black as night. Together we made for a sheltered corner under an awning, and leaning over the rail, excitedly demonstrated to each other by signs that Gib must be where the great moonlike lighthouse blinked and went out every few seconds. As we were thus engaged, a wild shower of sparks swept down upon us from the bridge, where they were setting off rockets in signal. Between fire and water, we had a lively time of it, but we hung on until, as the faintest lights of dawn appeared, we did actually see something of the mighty rock, towering far higher than we had anticipated. However, to make up, we spent radiant hours the next day lazily watching the Sierras of Spain as we passed along the coast. Great hills rising into misty clouds, with slopes and ravines and gullies glowing with color, purple and blue and green and gray. I have never looked upon any scenery which could so fitly be described as opal, for there were even flashes of a kind of ruddy tinge here and there. In the crinkles were little white villages, with the houses falling away in straggling lines adown the slopes, and here and there a tiny white-walled enclosure denoting a graveyard. Marseilles is as well known to English people as Dover, but to our insatiable eagerness it was full of interest. We went up the funicular railway to the church of Notre-Dame-de-la-Garde, crowned by the massive gilded figure of the Virgin, which looks down on a panorama of sea and shore, and sharp ranges of white rock outlined by masses of dark foliage. Rocky islets stud the sea, and on one stands Monte Cristo's castle, easily to be mistaken for the rock which forms its foundation. After Marseilles the next great excitement was passing Stromboli, which also occurred in the dark chilly hours of the morning. They did not arrange these things well for our comfort. It was so dark when we arrived on deck that we could not see the conical peak uprising from the sea at all. But as the sun rose and the sky swept from pale primrose and apple to orange, it came up black against it, and in the midst of the blackness there burst out a great puff of flame, and the lava ran down the side like burning coals. The quicksilver sea, meantime, turned to electric blue. The tiny white houses smiled out at us from the lower slopes, and we suddenly awoke from our absorption to find that the garments in which we had come out lightly attired were hardly suitable for the full whiteness of day. On a Sunday morning we passed through the Straits of Messina, and saw the shining cone of Etna, glowing silver snow, dominating all the scene. 
fascinating villages clustered along the shore, one of them built into and upon a mighty mass of rock, stupendous in size and looking from the ship exactly like a giant's castle. We arrived at Port Said on November 21, and were immediately surrounded by a flotilla of boats, thronged with men of every color and in every costume. The hybrid English, cosmopolitan slang, and native impudence make up an impressive whole. In its goods for sale, as in other things, Port Said borrows from all nations, and the lace, trinkets, enamel, and silver work which are offered are all offered at the hands of the middleman. My impressions of the place are of dirt, dust, tawdriness, extreme good humor, and a liberal overflow of officiousness. Every man in the main street has nothing better to do than to escort the newly landed from one shop to another, hoping that if he is lucky he will get bakshish from the victim and more from his fleecer in the shop. However, in spite of it all, it is worth going ashore, even though on return you have the sensation having escaped from a swarm of bluebottles which has been buzzing persistently around you. In the evening the tawdriness vanishes. The lights gleam golden, red or green. They shine on the still water, and the canal offices with their little sea-green domes rise against the lurid sky. Innumerable boats crawl around like glow-worms, and their babble resolves itself into a subdued and distant murmur. Then comes the canal. Among other and richer memories, this still holds its own, because of the quality of mystery which entered into it. When we had fairly started, the steamer crept on so silently and slowly that, except for the ripple on the viscid water, one could not have known she was moving. On each side were dim sandbanks dotted by white posts and diversified by dark shadows. The mystery of the night deepened. In the west, low down, a half-moon lying horizontally dropped almost perceptibly. On the same side, above and beyond the sandbank, was a vast lake of shimmering water, and as the moon fell towards its surface, her reflection broadened and became a wide pathway of orange light. Lower she fell, and deeper grew her dusky tinge in the murk, until she seemed not so much a moon as some solid three-sided object projected on an infinitely distant sky. The lights for a signal shone out ahead, two whites and a red, which, being interpreted, means, draw up at the next siding. On arrival there we found two cargo boats already tethered, and we took up a station behind them. In the interval of stillness that followed, we had time to notice the faint hiss of escaping steam, the shimmering of stars in the oily water, Orion and Sirius rising higher than ever seen in England. Then, far ahead, shone out a brilliant coruscating light, shooting a thousand jeweled rays along the water. There was so much grandeur in the noiseless approach of this apparently unsupported light that even the clatter on its saloon deck fell into silence. On it came, and as its direct rays ran past our eyes and ceased to blind us, we saw behind it the towering bows and high decks of a French battleship. Her portholes, crowded by eager faces, her barbettes, her guns, and her warlike apparatus, slipped before us and vanished. 
another came and yet another it was close on midnight and still they came altogether eight ships four of them battleships and as each one receded from us in slow majesty the lights of the next striking on her through the miasmic mist now rising from the water transformed her into a phantom ship seen in a fiery blue glow the searchlights upon the water attracted a multitude of small wriggling fish which leaped and squirmed alive with phosphorus until one had to rub one's eyes to believe their record true so much for the canal by night by day the desert is seen and the magic of it lies in the fact that it is so exactly what a desert should be the pinky yellow sand the lines of purple haze the ridge of barren hills the tufted palms and little oases the peasants working in the sun the donkeys grazing the camps where camels lie and chew the cud in haughty unconcern and by the side of the canal the little station houses apparently cut out of yellow cardboard all this is just what one expects to see both going and returning the sea at suez was of an overpowering blueness a blueness such as i never saw matched even in the far east ranging all the way from turquoise to prussian and infinitely varied for this alone suez may be remembered it was after suez that we first tried sleeping out on deck i had seen the notice that the upper deck was reserved for ladies at night when i boarded the steamer at tilbury to get a look at her before she went round to liverpool and imagination had transported me from the grey lowering skies and dirty atmosphere of the docks straight away to a picture of tropical calm a moonlit ship upon a moonlit sea where she made hardly any motion as she floated beneath a gorgeous tropical sky studded with stars the reality was different the steward being apprised of the intention of several ladies to take advantage of the deck accommodation rolled up bed and bedding in huge sausages with a practice hand and we trembling at the upward flight through the still lighted passages in scanty bed attire fled after him the lights were out in the drawing-room through which we had to pass and from the blackness of the floor various voices piteously wailed oh take care that's my head don't tread on me here i am can't you see stepping gingerly i arrived on the warm smooth deck which however was so completely covered with awnings that only at one side could we get glimpses of any stars peering down over the rail i saw the sheeted foam racing past with here and there the bright star-like phosphorescence outshining the moonlight dim figures joined me and a wild skirt dance was executed before we peered down to read our names written in chalk on the deck beside our respective bedding there was a good deal of wind and altogether it was not much like being cradled in the tropic calm i had foreseen it was difficult to get into bed at all when the wind wrenched sheets and blankets and threw them playfully aside dressing-gowns and bed-shoes had to be carefully tucked under the mattresses or they would have gone overboard then to sleep while the steady tramp of the officer on the bridge overhead sounded to and fro and every half hour the din of the bells clanged right in our ears soon after eight bells midnight 
a short oblivion visited my sleepy eyes to be ended abruptly in a wild start when I awoke to pandemonium. Everything seemed to be shrieking and screaming and whistling at once. The awnings snapped like pistol shots. The wind yelled, the sails groaned and strained. The air was full of salt, and my face and hands were singing intolerably with it. I wondered if I could, if I dare, make a dash for the shelter of the drawing-room. But there was so much to get a hold of—slippers, pillows, bedclothes, and dressing-gown, and to let one go would be to part from it for good. I simply clung on with hands and nails in desperation, and after a while dozed again. Yet when six bells, four a.m., rang, out the wind was blowing worse, so I made one effort, grabbed everything into an armful, and leaving the mattress alone to stick to the deck if it could, collapsed in a corner of the drawing-room onto a heap of cushions, and soon slept again. Besides the wind, another drawback to sleeping on deck was the early awakening. At five a.m., the electric lights were turned on from the bridge, and she would be a hearty sleeper, indeed, who could withstand their glare. One had to rise and stumble downstairs with bedding all in a heap, for the Lascars were waiting to swab the decks. We had, of course, all the usual board-ship amusements, the fancy-dress ball, the book-dinner, the gymkhana, and skittle competitions, and we had some that were not usual. One extraordinary hoax took in nearly every one on board. Somewhere in the Red Sea, one of the wits among the men started the idea of getting up a football match with the Colombo team on arrival. The suggestion was received enthusiastically. Every morning in the early hours, a string of barefooted, pajama-clad men raced around the decks training. At Parim, a wire was supposed to have been sent ashore requesting the Colombo team to be in readiness. The whole affair was kept up with great spirit until the last morning before we arrived at Colombo, when printed slips containing a full account of the great match, describing how one player had sprained his wind, and Hackenschmidt, Ceylon's renowned full-back, distinguished himself, were distributed, and the mighty joke, which had deceived all but the initiators, had lasted a full fortnight, was blown amid roars of laughter. The first paper ever printed on board a bibby boat was published this voyage. The last thing in it was by no means the least clever. He thought he saw a battered hat that danced the highland fling. He looked again and saw it was a football match in swing. "'Tis clear,' said he, when we go east, things get more interesting. End of chapter 1